0: I agreed to perform the surgery on the condition that he would never reveal his true identity to anyone. Yes. But I am willing to nullify our contract if you defeat me. I thought I had made myself perfectly clear.
1: I have no intention of revealing myself to anyone. Our
0: intentions can be changed, EA.
2: Enough! We must get back to the matter at hand. The fates of your very lives are now hanging in the balance.
3: It's the beauty of battle. One man's fragility juxtaposed against another man's strength. Now is the time to determine which man you'll be.
1: I must strike quickly. If I do not, my chances
0: of survival are grim. Judging by their weapons,
3: Shigure is sure to help
1: the upper hand. But yet, I am fighting without purpose, falling back into a life of meaningless killing, a life of dishonor and cowardice. There is no more dignity in this sort of existence. So I must find honor in death.
4: MECFS. if you just look at MECFS and not like the comorbidities I'm talking about do you have a higher mortality rate? Of course there's high mortality from suicide. That's like it's not just a there's a phenomenon of like non-suicides that are considered non-psychiatric suicides not because like, not because of the stigma of psychiatric illness or saying like but more because of like it would be over-psychologizing or medicalizing it's a response to like a normal response to like a bad circumstance you're sick and you have no cure what are you going to do like a lot some people are strong enough to live through it but a lot of people do commit suicide because of this circumstance and it's not necessarily because you know the brain chemicals are out of whack or they have like any kind of temporary mood imbalance not that those things can't become morbid, but I'm just saying baseline, it's not a good situation to deal with. It's that's an understatement and so like that's why in the literature there's the terminology like non psychiatric suicide, I think. Something like that phrase to explain like the higher mortality.
5: account the anticipated new cases of MECFS resulting from COVID-19. Prior to the COVID pandemic, we estimated a United States MECFS prevalence of 1.5 million and an annual economic impact of $36 to $51 billion. Now, due to COVID and its resulting post-acute sequelae, we estimate total ME-CFS prevalence could rise to between 5 and 9 million. This would incur an annual US economic impact of $149 to $362 billion in medical expenses and lost income, exclusive of other costs such as disability benefits, social services, and lost wages of caretakers. NIH funding for ME-CFS research would need to expand from the current amount of $15 million per year to approximately 472 to 600 million dollars annually up to a 40-fold increase to be commensurate with that of similarly burdensome diseases
4: And there's, you know, also like higher mortality just I think from like the heart disease and associated things, which makes sense, just kind of general worse health. And then there's a few extreme cases where people do die directly from the disease. So the main thing is like I was getting at is like the low mortality in that case. I'm not talking about like an acute illness. People could die of acute Lyme or most like many infections, you know, like uh, various viruses, COVID. But in a lot of these chronic illnesses, sometimes the mortality rate is not really high except for from the suicide or euthanasia or whatever. But it's really deceptive because like there are quotes from doctors that say like the disease is bizarre because we rarely see patients that are like, as an internist that are like internal medicine doctors that are this sick without being dead. They they seem like sick enough that they should be dying in a few weeks and then they don't, they linger, they hang on. But there are scientific reasons for this. So it's not just like, it's complex, but also just on an experiential level. If you look at a situation like this and go, well, you know, the mortality is low, so you know what's the big deal. The quality of life is, is awful. Like The people that don't kill themselves from these diseases, like, it's not, I don't think it's in that much of an overstatement to say that probably the main reasons are not because their life is great or even good or acceptable, but because they may have um, a religious problem with suicide inherently even in horrible circumstances they may be holding out hope for research changes
0: Wow, at,
6: at, at this point that that there might be some 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 real promise there for the first time in a long time
4: yeah i mean i definitely think that a lot of people are looking cautiously optimistically because the cdc has fucked us before but at the at the research infusion cash for long covid um and the increased in tensions. but um yeah they they're not the people that don't commit suicide it's with these illnesses generally like fall into the categories of yeah they're holding out hope for they're living their life on hold they're not in they're not not really living they're holding out hope basically that they will be able to live in the future truly because of research improving like drastically improving or like i said they may have a religious objection to suicide i'm sort of a little bit in both of those categories um or they may rightfully and i won't say this with contempt because i totally fear not necessarily death but the consequences of death they may fear like death directly i mean so it's basically like the suicide rate's already very high and that illustrates a lot about the quality of life especially because there's lots of workups which don't show necessarily like higher psychiatric disease or anything compared to like the rates you'd expect than a chronic illness that's undertreated or even sometimes not higher than controls. But I think of suicide mortality show you something about the like how unlivable these diseases are, but they also are lower than they really I don't want to say should be because I'm not saying people should kill themselves but what I mean is they're, lo- they're deceptively low despite being very high like uh, almost no one I know with illnesses like this is like you know really happy and grateful to be alive necessarily it's more like it's more like they're making some kind of contingent deal with themselves or Or the world that's like well i could get better under the right circumstances and even with the low probability that would be such a wonderful thing and death being so uncertain that i'll hang on for that you know totally which is
6: you know, I mean, the, 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 human will to, um, to live is very, very strong.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And I see this as like, sometimes it's something that irks me because it's like my body can't get better. Right. But I don't know, to get a bit personal, it's very hard to, even if I had no religious objections, even if I like, Yeah, I don't know, like, well, that's tricky to imagine as an agnostic who doesn't really, like, know about the afterlife or... But even if I, you know, had no specific religious objections or concerns about death by suicide, your body wants so much to live, and I don't... It wants so much to survive. Maybe that's a better way to put it. It Sometimes it wants to live that's like we're getting into some interesting idea of like uh, teleology and biology or telos what does the flesh want like the complexity of like biological matter well yeah and you know fuck it i said i'd like be fine with going as dark as like whatever and as personal i just don't want to encourage that in other people but you know it's kind of biographical anyway i've definitely you know thought about uh, suicide or medically assisted suicide or you know diy i guess alternative so much since being sick because it's just not a situation i considered acceptable you know regardless of my mood or my like optimism or will to get better My point is more like, yeah, like the, the will to survive is so strong and it's so hard to do that. One could, like, I could, I've considered it sometimes cowardice in myself, but like, you know, the flesh really trembles at that. And I don't think it's, for me, it's, it's almost involuntary. And, you know, it's like unnatural feeling um but it it's also like made even harder by the context of like you said there there could be like research advances there could be we live in like such a kind of horrible storm of uncertainty and and that makes things maybe even harder than if you like knew your fate totally i mean and even if your fate is bad if you knew it it might make acceptance easier but like, like what does acceptance mean when, when you don't really know what like i don't know like
6: the horizon of possibility even looks like or whatever
4: yeah right and like you know i get i don't know you could say some kind of like buddhist truism about like no one knows that but True that you know, you know. Well, if you kill uh, yourself, whatever, you
6: know that this experience of sentience will then end, right? So that there, there, there's a certain definite finality there, which you're closing that horizon, which is yeah. Really open if you kill yourself.
4: Well, yeah, I know less about after that, but also like uh, the what I meant was like it, you could say like yeah, like everyone experiences that horizon of uncertainty or whatever, and everything is in flux always and sure, that's yeah. sort of a truism but it's also kind of banal in that there are levels to it like you know most people don't spend their whole life wondering if, they're, if they'll if ever have a chance at health or as I call it kind of rejoining the living again that's a different kind of uncertainty I mean that that's that's spiritually hard that's that's very spiritually hard i don't know Um,
6: i I don't know if it could get that much harder in terms of a personal trial spiritually
4: yeah well i mean that's why i thought of like i mean there's like it's weird to do analogies because there's so many things that are qualitatively different and not necessarily quantitatively worse but just qualitatively different enough that it's weird to compare them but i do think like when people think of talk about illness as um, metaphor i think about like how how war metaphors are used with illness so so much and how like the only like writing that i found like to talk about like um besides some niche things like i don't know the virginia wolf essay on illness but like a lot of the only writing i found that talks about the experience of pain and like embodiment and in a way that is as aware of the horrors is of it and those negative potentials of it as the only work that i found that like gets close to that experience is like sometimes like writing on war or like stuff like that i don't know like I mean, I, I remember, like, liking the Ernst Younger on pain. Oh, yeah. And, and, the, and you know, he, he's a healthy, he was a healthy fella. I mean, I mean he obviously had terrible war injuries, but I think he, what, you know, wasn't very much permanently crippled by them. But th- just because of, like, experiencing, like, the weakness of the flesh in a really extreme
1: way, I guess that's what I'm talking about. There are, apparently, attitudes that enable man to become detached from the realms of life where pain reigns as absolute master. This detachment emerges wherever man is able to treat the space through which he experiences pain, i.e. the body, as an object. Of course, this presupposes a command center, which regards the body as a distant outpost that can be deployed. And sacrificed in battle. Henceforth all measures are designed to master pain, not to avoid it. The heroic and cultic world presents an entirely different relation to pain than does the world of sensitivity. While in the latter, as we saw, it is a matter of marginalizing pain and sheltering life from it, in the former the point is to integrate pain and organize life in such a way that one is always armed against it. Here, too, pain plays a significant but no doubt opposite role. This is because life strives incessantly to stay in contact with pain. Indeed, discipline means nothing other than this, whether it is of the priestly ascetic kind directed toward abnegation, or of the warlike heroic kind directed toward hardening oneself like steel. In both cases it is a matter of maintaining complete control over life so that at any hour of the day it can serve a higher calling. The central question concerning the rank of present values can be answered by determining to what extent the body can be treated as an object. The secret of modern sensitivity is that it corresponds to a world in which the body is itself the highest value. This observation explains why modern sensitivity relates to pain as a power to be avoided at all cost, because here pain confronts the body not as an outpost, but as the main force and essential core of life.
6: Yeah, yeah, the, the 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 flesh does tremble
4: for sure. Yeah, Under this what... kind of duress. Like what came to mind when you said like that nothing really compares to it. And I, I think like not much compares to it. And to be clear, I'm just, when I say it, I'm talking about not just like my chronic illness, but the broad category of chronic illnesses, like, cause I'm not certainly not saying this is like, you know, worse than ALS. Or you're right that like, there's not much that compares to, you know, I mean, I don't like to speak negative things into existence, but I think we can say that, like, until further research, these diseases don't have a cure or, like, a a solid FDA approved cure, let alone treatment. they do have like experimental off label treatments and you and I are kind of optimists or I'm a disappointed optimist, but I've, you know, like looked for these off label treatments and things to help like constantly. But sometimes when we talk about that kind of thing, it might almost obscure like how bad, um, some Of this is to people because they think, oh, there are treatments, and there are sort of, but <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know, not it's really, like, it's not something you can say is really standard. No, it's, it's something people are scrambling for, and some like smart people I'm not necessarily even including myself, I'm including people I listen to are like figuring out some like crazy biohacks out of this like labyrinth, and but. In terms of cures, like things that lead to total remission, and in terms of any of that being standardized and studied well enough to be like standardized, or no. (laughs) No, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, I I don't want to speak into existence, say like, call this uh, incurable disease, even though it kind of is, because I'm hoping we will, you know, figure out, things but yeah no I guess like there's no like weasel words around that I mean it, it's like that's what I mean when I'm saying that like I agree that there's nothing that really compares to it but I'm trying to specify what it is it's not just me but it's like chronic diseases that are lifelong that don't have that are like, really a, extreme a yeah. yeah
6: the most extreme ones I mean having you know thyroiditis or something is that sucks but it's it's not the same as having you know MECFS or or um ALS or uh, or uh, you know treatment resistant MS whatever which they yeah. have and stuff like that well, yeah not no same. i
4: mean it's like really tricky to compare things but i guess i can say that like you know like like uh, it's better to have a disease that has treatments and treatments aren't curious but there's still treatments it's better to have a disease that has treatments than to not have that generally and it's um you know there's some interesting studies and we could actually like maybe include these in a voiceover with comparing like actually quantitative analyses of quality of life i don't know i mean like there and then every disease like varies a lot there are people with like mild ME/CFS or mild, that are on the mild end who might be so functional that they're like better off than a lot of illnesses. But like, I mean, severe ME-CFS, I'm not not even like the most severe, but like people like Whitney Defoe, that's like just like this lower hell realm out of... A number of hell realms it's like and again this yeah like yeah it's it, it's tricky to compare because like these our activist movements have like successfully like used the language of comparing it these diseases to other diseases that like get more funding relative to severity or whatever but uh you know i'm just like the precision is important because i don't want to minimize other diseases it's just that like that it's just like that i could do we could do a whole tangent on that and i like have the not at hand i have like the written essay or polemic that goes into breaks down like quality of life scores um disease adjusted life years um dal wise um in various diseases and then they're like disease burden and like relative to funding and mbcfs is like comes out the worst in that category and so people aren't saying it's worse than any other disease inherently they're saying like it is underfunded relative yeah like if you if you if you gave like mbcfs patients treatments they they probably they might not get like score lowest or close to lowest in these quality of life studies that I'm talking about. So it's not like it's not like a, a suffering competition. The point is to point out like funding for research is so low for some of these illnesses compared to how badly they impact people, but also compared to how common they are. I and mean, that's that's something you could probably. Speak on with like long COVID, because ME/CFS was already not a rare disease. Rare disease is like I think under five thousand or under two thousand. Definitely, you know, ME/CFS is over a million and quite, quite over. I think so.
6: Probably or, several million before this whole COVID situation. I, I would yeah I would before think COVID.
4: For and now, like, what you know, what we, are you seeing about numbers and like COVID and.
6: I mean, so I, anecdotally
4: I think, and maybe like in things you've read about the actual numbers.
6: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are definitely there are definitely many millions of people who have long COVID. again, long COVID is like yeah, it's like sort of like you're talking about before, where it's it's helpful to be kind of specific because um, I would almost uh, make a differentiation between people who have like a 12 week period illness or something where they have a little a little post-viral kind of um, aftershock situation where they're sick for a, a short period of time, basically, and are not gravely ill versus people who are in the six month and more, which is kind of, that's like the hallmark of ME, CFS, is like you're once you get past the six month territory i mean a year i would say is like that's like the real like you're heading into like really bad territory but um uh that's what doctors will 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 tell you in terms of like six, past six months it's, it's it's uh you're you're in a bad situation so there's definitely tens of millions of people who've gotten long COVID in terms of in terms of like you're sick for at least weeks at a time, but um, in terms of lasting like six months to a year over, I would say that it's probably it, it it's it's millions of people for sure globally. Um,
4: I think in the U.S., like you know, given our different response to COVID, if like you count those people as like ME/CFS patients, which is tricky because of the different levels of severity. It's at least more than doubled. I would say probably like what the previous number of M- MACFS patients oh, were. Oh
6: yeah. uh, I, I would I would guess if I had to ballpark it I would I would guess it's like you're, you're talking tripled or pa- probably yeah. more. But by by the end of this. It's yeah. It's it's a it's it's a massive massive increase in in that way. I mean, and, and again, it's like it's that thing where if there is going to be something where there's a seismic change in terms of moving towards a corrective um, motion to do serious research with serious funding to change the situation, if this is going to be that moment for this sea change to happen. Yeah, um, which I I, I think it is.
4: That's a good thing like cuz this is something I'd like to believe but that's a the, it's a good thing to zoom in on is like so a lot of MECFS patients actually I think like I have it's not that impressive of a prediction because like everyone was saying it um at least it was in chronic disease worlds I was I think on one of the podcasts we did like Early in the pandemic, I was being like, this is going to cause a huge wave of chronic illness. And it, it may be like the thing that finally causes us to get MECFS funding. And um, I still kind of think that if anything can cause that, it would be this event. It's like the biggest like mass disabling event. And it's also not happening the fact that it is happening like in such short succession or everyone at once causes more solidarity than with, with like ME-CFS, like where even though there are clusters and outbreaks, it's like a bit more atomized. It's less like everyone getting sick at once, you know? Totally. Not totally. like everyone got sick this year, you know?
6: Well, also, you know, let's be honest. There's some people in the the long COVID world who are very severe and they're big activists, but for the most part, again, you know, the people who are the biggest activists in this world are—they're not severe. I mean, I'm not—I'm not—you I'm not, know—doubting. Well, they're
4: probably severe compared to like a lot of diseases. Oh, definitely. But we're talking definitely. about like but like as you, bad as they're not be. necessarily like um, bed bound with the most extreme sensory sensitivity and like that—that's what I'm uh, to crashes to. from mild cognitive. exertion like, th- do they which have makes it very hard to be an activist if you had that.
6: Totally, totally. Are, are a bunch of these people people who they they can't exercise? Yeah. Um, they're close to bed bound, if not kind, you know, on the threshold of of, of, uh, right. of being bed bound or whatever. That's you know, you can do a lot more if you can, you know, contact journalists and yeah, um, you know, write things versus like you have such yeah. extreme you know, like what you're talking about. Uh, if you have such extreme right. sensitivity that you literally cannot do anything in your darkened room all day you know being fed through an IV or whatever
4: yeah and and that's like i was also saying that if there's anything that we specifically need in like mecfs activism it's like people who are on the milder side to like take a pretty prominent role like there might be some people who like you know like when you say like those people are less severe like it's the point is not you're not it's not to dismiss them. The point is, like, practically, it's very hard to do activism when you're at, when you're very sick. It's, it's basically a, impossible. A huge effort for me to do like a, a fucking podcast where I'm kind of, you can tell a bit, kind of like rambling executive function the and this is like the first one i've done in like a year let and you know i've tried to do some small like things like articles and like awareness raising it's not because i like shy away from irl activism it's because i've gotten so sick i mean maybe when I was in denial about my illness early on, I, I may have shied away from IRL activism. And that's the problem. That's the pattern is like, you're in denial for a bit, and then by the time you're over the denial, you're too sick to do shit, you know? Totally. The thing is the MECFS cfs funding was something absurdly low between 10 and 15 million allocated yearly by the NIH which sounds like a lot because who wouldn't like to have that much money but in research amounts it's very low it's lower than male pattern baldness which you know honestly like I get you know I get concerned with one's appearance but it isn't as serious <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, I was gonna like make a little like, 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 uh, you know, um, shout out to the, the locusts. Uh, I don't know,
6: but well, people talk about how they're gonna kill themselves and they start balding or whatever, so
4: you know, yeah, there you go, but, but yeah, should... I mean, no, nah, but yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it, it may be, yeah, like. I mean, the worst thing would be to have like both of those insult and injury, very severe illness. And then like something like th- that's very like, uh, unflattering body, just your shit on top. Like, I don't know, get very sick. And then you also bald. Um, totally. so 15 million a year, not much, um, for ME CFS funding allocated by the NIH, not enough of like a, huge protest movement to change things. I mean there's definitely been more of a protest movement since millions missing started in the last ten years and like coinciding with Jen Brea's leadership and her film. But like compared to other diseases, it's really jack shit. And like uh sometimes like people are so excited for crumbs that they'll they'll like hype it up a little bit. But like to be totally honest it's not it's not very hopeful amount of funding then with long covid you get what seems like almost too be good to be true 1.15 billion allocated for research for long-term effects of covid and billion not million to be really clear in the midst of like a few tangents but going from like, we're talking about similar diseases where, like I said, I think if you they might not be total overlap, but if you figure out one, either of figure them are the or other. figured out.
6: Th- 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 that, that's totally the case. It's very important to yeah. illustrate that. If you solve one of these, the other one will be solved.
4: Yes, even if there is not 100% overlap in the Venn diagram, yeah, there's enough that if you solve one, you solve the other. And, that's why I'm comparing the funding, and so MECFS, fifteen million a year, and then Long COVID, one point one five billion. Okay, so there's like there's a white pill and a black pill in there. The white pill is that that that's gargantuan. That the fact that that even happened, and then I think like maybe the black pill is like, how is it actually? being spent Um, I don't know like we've talked about this a little bit
6: yeah I mean there's definitely gonna be some of that money is spent for um, for uh, like useless kinds of um, symptom cataloging stuff but um, I'm definitely very sure that a bunch of very substantive research will be done as well and also there's so much there's so much agitating and pressure Going on in the long COVID world for people to, um, for this to be well done. Most of the money has been, is, is being given to, or like half of the money is being given to NYU Langone. Uh, oh, wow. And a, a bunch of the people who are in charge of that are like really good people. So I, um, I can't remember the, the guy's name. Um, I think it's Peter something. He's like, uh, Ro. Uh, that, that, that might be, might, that might be it. Well, maybe I mean, I he's like a,
4: he's at Johns Hopkins, like. Oh, no, it's, no, that, that's not him. That's not him.
6: No, okay. it, it, it's some dude. Um, He's in charge of, uh of the long COVID um rehabilitation program at, at, at Langone. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll have to look that up later. Maybe we'll add, add that, but um, yeah. So, so yeah. that, that's huge. I think it's like 600 million is, is going to them and uh but it's also like this is just america too right that, that's the thing it's like there's mobilization going on globally for massive research into this so you yeah. have several billion over the next
4: coming. i think the days. reason why people focus on america besides the fact that we live there we live here is that like i mean it's like with me cfs especially with like uh some of these disease america has kind of sadly because our research efforts haven't been that great been like leading in terms of how much money it it pours into like researching M E C F S and over other countries um totally so far so you kind of like look to the u.s in terms of like um if that's going to be a cue for other countries.
6: That's the thing, um, though, with, with the long COVID stuff, the most promising research is coming out of South Africa and Germany. So the, the, those are the, because the main. Of Risa centers. Pretorius,
4: or how yeah. do you pronounce the name?
6: Yeah, uh, or like Racia Pretorius, and um, the people in uh, Berlin who are doing, um, uh, I think it's Berlin Cures, who are doing um, like a, a bunch of drug research where they have this drug called BC. Um, zero, zero 007. Oh, seven. Yeah, 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 and so th- that is like uh, those are the two main fronts, which are probably some of the most promising stuff going on there. The yeah. the, the stuff going the, the stuff that that that, that woman, uh, Racia Pretorius, is doing in South Africa is probably the most promising stuff going on for long COVID, and I I, I would be very surprised if there were not large large implications. Um, for what she's doing with the research of uh, of micro clotting and uh, the that like vascular system and yeah it uh, certainly
4: seems like that's pretty groundbreaking
6: oh it's totally groundbreaking there's yeah it's it's my only it's concern is how to like
4: scale and replicate it yeah totally yeah that's i mean because she was finding, like just uh, i don't know to do like tiny science standards she was finding micro clots that weren't like they they it wouldn't show up as like normal like um clotting factors being different in blood um she's finding like these tiny microclots that were like uh held together with maybe like i don't know like fibrin or something yeah fibrogenin i think it's called it 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 wasn't looking like on normal tests like you had like a clotting problem or anything Uh, it, it didn't show up as a very obvious vascular problem but it was a serious vascular problem just because of like the scale and like the way we test things didn't show up initially they were like finding like tons of little microclots like held together with i guess fibrinogen or probably something like we'll add in the edit but that and then like actually like even weirder like some inflammatory molecules small molecules inside those clots like cytokines which i don't fully understand but the point is yeah interesting research
6: yeah then once these clots are broken up there are all these um things that are being yeah like like inflammatory cytokines and stuff are being released into the blood you know which is super interesting stuff
3: well let's talk to one dr asad khan um uh, you've been suffering from long COVID. Just tell us about, well, first of all, the symptoms that you've had, and uh, but then also the treatment you've been getting.
0: Certainly, thank you very much. So I acquired the um, illness on a respiratory COVID ward in November 2020. I developed unbearable skin rashes, memory loss, inflammation around the heart, bladder incontinence, and a disabling condition called POTS, which made it impossible to sit or stand due to nausea and dizziness. And by August, I was losing weight. I was lying in a darkened room with blindfolds and earplugs and I honestly didn't care if I fell asleep and never woke up again. And I've had to be my own doctor, researcher and advocate. And while some clinicians have empathised and believed, others have suggested that it would just get better with time or it was psychological or that they were waiting for research and uh, they couldn't do anything in the interim. And despite my knowledge and my access, uh, it's been a nightmare to get the right care, I can only imagine what it must be like for the average person. And as for the treatment, it's quite simple. It's uh, similar to dialysis, blood is taken out of one arm, it's run through a machine which cleans it of blood clots and it's returned to the other arm. I've had seven cycles of this treatment so far. My blood was so full of clot material that it blocked the machine on four occasions. They've pulled multiple clots out of my arm veins And what is really interesting is that all of the usual clotting blood tests, like D-dimer and fibrinogen, were normal in my case.
3: So how are you feeling now?
0: Well, I arrived in Germany in a wheelchair, and I nearly fainted in the clinic waiting room. But now, after seven treatments, I can walk short distances, I can look at a computer screen, I can read scientific texts again, I can eat foods I had become intolerant to, and thankfully, the nausea is gone. I still have more treatments to go, but uh, I do feel like things are moving in the right direction and uh, it seems like I finally got a chance of getting my life back again. This appears to be a really promising treatment, clearly we need more resources and funding uh, because the the last thing I want to see is desperate patients being forced to self-medicate with potent drugs like anticoagulants, uh, therefore experienced clinicians should be should feel able to discuss these treatments with their patients weighing up the risks and benefits because researchers from Cape Town and San Francisco have demonstrated microclots in the blood of long COVID sufferers beyond a shadow of a doubt. It is a myth that long COVID and other invisible illnesses, such as ME, are psychological just because certain tests are normal. Patients can be very sick with normal tests. And it is quite clear that in long COVID, our tissues are starved of oxygen due to these clots in the blood vessels. We are not deconditioned. We are not anxious due to the lockdown. And talking therapies and rehabilitation are not going to fix this. Exercise only makes us worse. And patients who are sick for months and months are unlikely to get better on their own. A simple bedside test called a venous oxygen saturation can demonstrate how ill we are. Mine was 32. The normal adult range is 65
3: to 75. And just briefly, Beata, um, to you once again, Dr. Beata Yeager. um Long COVID is clearly a phenomenon we are still struggling to learn about, uh, but do you think this could be the key to understanding what it is doing to the human body, these microclots?
2: Yes, I think this is a key phenom- phenomenon, and uh, Professor Pretorius and Professor Lauter uh, are were the, were the first to demonstrate that it's very difficult to dissolve these clots. And they now come to join my clinic uh, in the middle of November. And we will, uh, they come to revalidate my uh, results from treating by now 104, only 104 uh, patients. But the good news about is it is that some people just need one treatment and they can get rid of all symptoms, others need five. I've been treating um, a a printer from the UK, he needed 14 treatments, that was the maximum, but he came in with a wheelchair and he walked out upright on his feet. And this is a cruel disease, and it affects worldwide 400 million people. And um, the mechanical um, removal of clots is one possibility. Anticoagulation will help also. So we just have to demonstrate that this is a generalized vessel disease and people need quick treatment because my patients were all very young, very sportive, doing marathon, being caretakers, being, being children of my patients, uh, being um, really people in the middle of their lives and they should have it back.
3: All right, Dr. Beata Yeager, fascinating to hear about that treatment and also Dr. Asad Khan,
6: to hear about your treatment and very good luck actually with your recovery let's hope it continues thank you so much and, and you know and now she's she's doing stuff with uh with MECFS now too so that's like um,
4: she's using them as like controls yes yeah, where yeah. like where, yeah, that's that's cool. I'm, I'm glad because I know there are people in the me community. Like, uh, for on my part, I I saw them as similar enough that I wasn't even that worried. Like, you know, what label they were using would be using for studies. But there are some people in the MECFS community like that were concerned that even with all the new attention on similar issues, like the research wouldn't filter down to. Or trickle down to them i mean people have a lot of reasons to be very stressful but it's it's um good that these researchers are comparing these conditions like um, well and that's the
6: same thing with you know, the, ever with ever the drug in 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 germany They're they started doing it for long COVID, but they're they're doing it for uh NBCFS right away now they already, yeah. they already started doing that so that's like uh and it seems like they were able to to uh, eliminate I, I, can't, I can't remember what it is, but um, you know, maybe we'll add that as well, whatever. But it was like 26 autoantibodies or something where like the full panel of like, I'm sure there are more, but what they were looking for autoantibody-wise, of whatever's causing this, uh, at least in terms of autoimmunity, like what's going on here. And uh, they were able to eliminate like almost all of them or all of them with, it, with this drug preliminarily. So that that's like an absolute game changer. And they're doing that for now. We're gonna see if it works for, for MECFS. Oh I mean, soon.
4: Yeah. When,
6: you know, probably and there'll be news on that uh in the next six months. So that that yeah. that, that seems very promising to me.
4: Yeah, I guess like the, the the thing to me, like the um yeah, I don't even want to say the black pill, but the, the things that put the cautious and cautious optimism is like how the nih is is actually doling out like the 1.15 billion there's a lot of like international research you allude to that's good there's some domestic research that's being funded but they haven't spent most of it and it seems like there's like there's a bit of history with like the MECFS uh, mecfs community where like they've quote-unquote lost money kind of and siphoned it for other things projects they wanted to do because they didn't consider the disease serious enough so
5: the national institutes of health is fumbling its first efforts to study long covid 15 months ago congress showered the agency with a massive 1.2 billion dollars to research the mysterious cases of patients who never fully recover from COVID-19 infections. Critics charge that the NIH's missteps are even bigger, that it is acting without urgency, it is taking on vague, open-ended research questions rather than testing out therapies or treatments, and that it is not being fully transparent with patient advocates and researchers. Even the NIH admits the pace has been dissatisfying. And then there's the matter of the money, more than $1 billion of which was temporarily transferred out of NIH to help pay for the health department's efforts to house unaccompanied children at the US border with Mexico. Researchers have struggled for years to understand post-viral diseases like myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome and dysautonomia a disorder of the autonomous nervous system. Currently, there are no cures available. Patients with chronic post-viral illnesses have often felt misunderstood and dismissed by the medical establishment. The government's massive investment in long COVID research gave post-viral patients and researchers hope that this could be their moment in the spotlight. This could be the resource intensive push that could finally provide a breakthrough. The circumstances of the pandemic make it a particularly rich research opportunity. COVID is a clearly defined, easily diagnosed illness and millions of people recovered without long-term symptoms. But there is a growing chorus that the study itself is far too broad and too focused on observing patients and that the agency can make more of a difference if it studies treatments and therapeutics, too. Even putting aside the debate over the NIH's study design, the enrollment numbers are minuscule. The study is meant to enroll 40,000 adults and children, but by March 18th, it had signed up just 1,366, 3% of the goal. The pace of recruitment for the NIH study has left patient advocates flummoxed. Even now, the NIH website doesn't have a comprehensive listing of which sites are recruiting for the long COVID study. Though some sites began enrolling adults six months ago, there's a placeholder note that tells interested patients, quote, soon you'll be able to see and choose study sites near you. When the studies begin enrolling, you can join a study. A group of two dozen COVID-19 experts recently released a report that excoriated the NIH's progress as well noting that recruiting for the study has been painfully slow. More than 200 long COVID studies were registered on a federal database as of February 2022, but only eight were NIH funded, the experts noted. The funding for the NIH study has a complicated backstory. Congress gave the NIH $1.15 billion in December 2020 for long COVID research. But in a little notice move last year, the Biden administration transferred the money for the study to pay for housing unaccompanied children at the US-Mexico border. The health department said it needed the money at the border because COVID-19 protocols required more social distancing and quarantine facilities. The NIH argues that its long COVID study wasn't slowed down at all by the funding transfer because the money was replaced by funds from a COVID-19 testing and contact tracing program. But the transfer makes it harder for outside experts to track how much is actually spent on long COVID research, especially during a time when the government is so strapped for pandemic response money. Patient advocates have also grown increasingly worried that the NIH's patient engagement efforts are subpar and don't live up to the high-minded rhetoric that the agency employs in public. The study's website says the NIH wants to include patients, caregivers, and community representatives to help make plans for and provide suggestions on research being done. But some prominent long COVID patient advocacy groups started raising concerns in November that the patient engagement efforts weren't as robust as they had hoped. At the time, they were concerned by the lack of a comprehensive patient engagement structure, the dearth of involvement by experts involved in researching other post-viral illnesses, and little evidence that patient suggestions were actually being implemented. For example, there was a call for patient participation that required attendance in multiple multi-hour meetings in a single week. The invitation only went out the Friday before. When the NIH has invited us into some rooms, it feels like it's purely to check a box, the groups wrote. The process has been chaotic for Liza Fisher, a member of the Long COVID Alliance's executive committee and a Long COVID patient. Fisher was chosen to participate in a committee advising the program, but the panel's focus was thrown into question after an abrupt reorganization. As it goes on, it seems to be an inefficient process and there's a lot of overlap, Fisher said. The membership of the different committees besides the executive committee is not public. Beyond patient concerns about transparency, researchers have been frustrated too and some have been afraid to speak out for fear of jeopardizing NIH funding. The long COVID researcher called the initiative a black box that's excluding subject matter experts. There needs to be more open access and discussion about who is being funded and whether they can make data available. This is federal funding and we should be able to share those things immediately, the researcher said. Even if the NIH can speed up the work, it may still have to fight against extraordinarily high expectations, an unlikely byproduct of its own triumph with the COVID-19 vaccines. The wildly successful public-private partnerships to accelerate the development of COVID-19 vaccines and treatments elevated the understanding of what the agency is capable of. Look what we were able to do with a vaccine. When there is an emergency that requires a response, they are able to move and make things happen.
4: You know, you think if you get Congress to allocate the money for the NIH, uh, to spend on a given disease, that's enough, that's like the hurdle cleared, that's the, the big hurdle cleared. Um, but even past that, you know, I'm like looking at how they're spending it, Walter Koroshetz is in charge um, of the NINDS, part of the NIH. Um, head of neurological diseases and stroke and um i don't know i I think they need a a a fuck ton of scrutiny and they i don't know they not being an economics major i don't really understand it and not being a poli-sci person but they have some kind of like voodoo powers to make like money disappear or (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. to like just kind of like siphon stuff into some like bureaucratic black box where like you're not sure whether like the funds allocated for that specific project are being spent on that like there was an incident recently with them like spending some of the funding on something like totally different than long COVID but saying that it's fine because they'll replace it well,
6: it, they took it for like something to do with the border.
4: Yeah, yeah, like um, housing migrants yes. because, because yeah, of that, that risk. It. Mitch, well, which you is know, just like is fine with me. Although that seems like it, it's just like what kind a farce this whole situation is. Like <laughs> it's
6: total stretch.
4: Yeah, because the money was supposed to be allocated specifically for studying long-term effects of COVID. And like The money's getting replaced from some like,
6: other like, disaster fund thing.
4: Yeah. No, I mean, like, yeah. Like, I mean, supposedly. Yeah. To be clear, yeah. I yeah. mean, like, yeah, I have, you know, no issue with, like, the government, like, uh, using funds to humanely prevent COVID um, among, like, housing migrants. I'm not talking about the immigration policy. I'm talking about, like, the fact that they basically are using funding that is set up for like a specific disease and just kind of throwing it at something else and this is why it's confusing to follow like as a patient like it they said that they're going to replace those funds if they just need them temporarily if that's true that's great if it's not yeah I mean that's tricky yeah I mean yeah it's like bizarre but also I mean yeah so there like I said there's like the the white pill and that's like the huge amount of money being spent and there's like the black pill and that's how like the history of the NIH and CDC like fucking up like various diseases and just being like very difficult to navigate or advocate for bureaucracies um yeah I don't know but I, I mean with
6: the global scale of this whole situation with how many millions of people and so many different countries with all of the, the the forces that work here to potentially um go in research wise it's I, I think I think it's it's just too uh there, there there's there's too much pressure like it with in, in globally yeah. not just with america like it's 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 going to happen like will billions be spent maybe on it, yeah. yes the, the, if it's you know if it's if it's a messy situation partially in america which it will be i think we can pretty much guarantee that Them having already allocated like 500 or whatever 600 million dollars to to nyu is a very good sign the rest of it who fucking knows what's going to happen with that but like uh yeah. just globally it's just like i think it's uh uh, i i would say it's it's as done of a deal as, as it as it can be just seeing how many things are in place for a massive amount yeah. of research which you know i i think that is i think that is a, a massive white pill ultimately
4: yeah i guess like yeah and like the weird thing about the the border thing is that they basically a big concern a lot of people had was um that they'd use, that they'd define long COVID very broadly, like for research purposes, like talking about like chronic disease, chronic syndrome rising from like the sequelae of an acute COVID infection that's in like, so they weren't studying, as far as I know, and this is a problem not the problem being like immigration or whatever they weren't studying specifically like long covid and people at the border like treating long covid and people I, you know that's they were like not funding you know treatment or prevention from where you know from where ever else the funds should come from they were taking it from like very specifically allocated to long COVID pile of money and saying well like the COVID part yeah basically using it for I think like sanitation uh, um, or like uh, public health measures it's just funny it's, just a, it's so classic
6: like, it's just like yeah of course that's happening there's gonna be some weird like uh, you know Direction of these funds. and there's going to be some obscurantism and mystification and you know it's like here we go it's it's that's pure americana right there yeah you know what i mean but still i mean it's like uh you know nonetheless i don't know you you, you want to figure out like how should we wrap this one up i feel like we're going on like four hours here
4: oh yeah well i was just i mean that's like the biggest thing i wanted to address is like what you know what's the outlook
6: I feel like the outlook is good, but it's like again, for having been sick as long as you have, I'm sure it's hard to even get especially people who have been sick for 20, thirty years or whatever, they're like, you know, how can you believe anything is gonna is gonna change? And for someone like you, you've been you've been sick for long enough where it's like I'm sure it's very hard to 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 see any kind of possible deliverance from the situation. but like if there were to be one, i would I would think this would probably be
4: it. The, the, like the revelation is upon us.
6: I mean, I definitely think so. I I am yeah. quite positive that it will be. It's just like a question of like how long will yeah. that
4: take. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, I guess like to wrap it up like briefly,
6: like where are you at with that? You know what I mean? I mean, not to put you on the spot, but like just reflecting on it.
4: Well, I mean, I had some like bad uh reaction to contrasts in an MRI recently and some real quality of life setbacks, like eye problems on top of like already being like very sick. I guess like the the 1.15 billion is like, that number was so high that I was just like, it, it seems almost impossible to mess this up. So, and then I don't know, it's like, it's it's a strange, uncertain time. I think of myself as kind of an eternally disappointed optimist, but it's kind of a dark time. Like, I, I have, you know, lots of friends that are get, getting various, like, kinds of illnesses. Like, not only from COVID, just necessarily uh, from possibly environmental toxins and but it, it seems kind of like a race here. Like there's you know, people see like the the state as like um, <laughs> it like inherently good or bad or evil. Like the like the deep state or whatever. But like public health bureaucracy, like similar to like whatever environmental whatever limited good environmental things they do is like one of the few good functions of the state. And like to me, it's kind of like. I don't know, like, a strange race between, like, this coalition of activists and, like, very sluggish, but still maybe responding public health people to figure out, like, figure out this way out of, like, this labyrinth. That's insanely hard to figure one's way out of. Totally. So I guess, like, that. what I'm saying is, like, looking for the uh, Ariadne's thread, the thread yeah, out of the maze yeah I guess like um, that's kind of fragmentary but that's where I'm at that's where I've been at for a while um, you know I'm in a very low place but I'm looking for that thread
6: I think that's kind of the, the, the most realistic you know hopefulness that, that you could really maintain in, in this situation word you know what I mean yeah. It's like, I mean, right. you know, it, it's, it's, uh, I, there, there are definitely, there, there's, uh, probably, you know, if this was 10 years ago, you're in this situation, there'd probably be way less hope on the horizon than, than now, which is one kind of, um, possibly somewhat triumphant, we hope, at least possibility that, that, that's opened up. Yeah. I, I, I think that, 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 that makes total sense
4: yeah, I think that's a good good place to end it on. That's like
6: perfect.